Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello. And welcome to the History of the Copts, episode 45, Introduction 2.0. In narrative histories, such as this podcast, continuation is often emphasized over abrupt changes, and a coherent narrative takes precedent over detailed analysis of the various historical sources. No matter how significant one event is, it is still a one event over a 2,000 years history. Nonetheless, the subject of the next few episodes, the Arab conquest of Egypt, is extraordinary in the kind of changes that it inaugurated. And based on those extraordinary changes, and a couple of practical reasons, I wish to emphasize the abrupt change over the continuation, just for this episode. This is the moment where the label Late Antiquity ends and Medieval starts. This is also the moment where one field of scholarship ends and another starts. For us, this is where emperors turn to caliphs, the sea, becomes the desert, and elite Christian disputes to a fascinating dynamic between a politically powerful Islam ruling a Christian Middle East. Practically, the podcast moves from an interesting view and the development of early Christian theology to a story about how did those Christians cope with Islam, focusing on the Copts, of course. As such, this episode will be an introduction and will slightly veer off the course of the narrative. It would also be the start of something new that I am excited about, but more on that in a bit. Basically, we are going to talk about historiography and the sources and then talk about the beginning of Islam. This is kind of important as a quick overview of the early world of Islam is vital to put Egypt, the Copts, and the upcoming conquest in perspective. In other words, to understand Egypt and the Copts under the Caliphate, we must know exactly what is a Caliphate first. To start, as mentioned before, a bit about historiography is needed and in essence where I'm getting the story from. Historiography, in a nutshell, is a critical examination of the primary sources, 
which one is informed, and which one is a collection of legend. And inside these sources, what is greatly embellished and what is closer to the truth. Where before, this was important, but not necessarily vital to the overall arc of the story, historiography and the upcoming events is highly contested, and without a solid background of the sources, the story would be very incomplete. So far, in the podcast, I could confidently say that, no matter what source you looked into, the main historical events and characters basically stayed the same, with minor differences. Important differences, to be sure, but from a big historical narrative perspective, minor. Now, there is a marked shift, and even among elite academia, what is a historical truth and what is a legend is very, very different. Even fundamental issues, such as whether the invading Arabs were motivated by a religion or not, is contested. I have managed to avoid modern examples so far, but I think a modern example in this case would serve well to explain the problem about the history of early Islam, with a couple of big limitations which I will get to in a second. Imagine a world where the written history of the founding of America was not written until after World War II. In that world, America became an empire first, then the history was written. And not only that, the history had to reflect a divine hand in the founding of America and reflect modern issues such as the structure of taxation and the relationship between various ethnic and racial groups. In that world, can we even be sure of the existence of the figure of George Washington, let alone the reasons and the chronology of the American Revolution? And this is basically how most of the historical sources of whatever happened in the Arabian Peninsula in the 7th century came to us. Essentially, it was written down a couple of hundred years after the fact, with very real legal and economic implications attached to it. Thus, most events and characters are open to speculation. My examples, of course, simplifying a complex issue. For one, oral tradition in the Arabian Peninsula had a long history and should not be automatically dismissed. Not to mention, it was not just abstract history. No, the life and the saying of the Prophet and his companions slash the early Caliphs were, and still, a big part of Islam. A whole field in Islamic studies was about these issues, the science of Hadith. And specific criteria was developed to reject or accept the various oral traditions. By 870 AD, around 250 years after the death of the Prophet, one of the most influential Islamic scholars, Al-Bukhari, published the sound saying of the Prophet, Sahih al-Bukhari, that in time became the basis for much of Islam. Additionally, there are other non-Islamic sources that peripherally touches on the Arabian Peninsula and can give us an idea about what's going on in there, but usually with minimal details. The point here is not to dunk on Islamic traditions, 
but to explain a unique historical situation where in essence even the serious scholarship are all over the place and anything and everything about early Islam is contested. So on one extreme you get the traditional Islamic telling of the story based on the saying of the Prophet or the Hadith and other Muslim historians writing around the 9th century or so. On the other extreme you got Western scholarship that completely dismisses the later Islamic sources and basically sees Islam as a later invention to govern an empire rather than the motivation behind the conquest that created that empire was plenty of fork in between. Fortunately, this problem is slightly alleviated when it specifically comes to Egypt and the Copts. John of Nicot, a frequently cited primary source in this podcast, was an eyewitness to the conquest, and his versions of the event, while has limitation, is much closer to the truth than all the subsequent later versions, Islamic traditions or not. Also, the history of the patriarchs is extremely valuable to the interworking of the Coptic Church. Again, it has its own limitation, but it's really the only thing valuable that is specific to the Coptic Church. So, as a guiding principle, and for those interested in further reading, the historiographic argument presented in the book From Byzantine to Islamic Egypt by Magid Mikhail forms the backbone of the next period of this podcast. Outside of Egypt is a bit more dicey, but I generally stuck with the view presented in Muhammad and the Believers by Fred Donners, where he argues for a flexible beginning of Islam as a movement that emphasized a belief in one God and an Arabic ethnic identity, rather than a whole different religion. According to this view, the transition from believers to Muslim only happened under the Caliph Abdel Malik 50 years or so after the conquest of Egypt, which is really speculative middle road between the two extremes. I have also tried to include the specifics of the Islamic tradition when it came to Egypt for the benefit of the Coptic listener who may be much more familiar with the official version taught in schools in modern Egypt than the more rigorous Western scholarship. This should not affect the narrative too much, as after this episode and the hazy first few years, the scholarship becomes much more reasonable again. So, to put it all together, there are wildly different narratives for the early Arabic conquest and the start of the movement called Islam. I will be presenting what I believe is a mainstream academic Western narrative, which is different than a traditional Islamic one, yet greatly respect that tradition. It is also still a bit different from other mainstream Western narratives that see the conquest as primarily motivated by factors other than religion. In the Pacifics in Egypt, the ground would be a bit more solid, but still, Different narratives do exist. Also, we can separate the legend from truth there a bit easier. So, 
With this brief introduction of the sources, I can finally get to my announcement and a plan for the podcast in the future. I need your help to continue this podcast as is and build on it to achieve its mission. If you remember from the very first episode, almost a year ago, I laid out this mission that, quote, this project is meant to be the starting point to explore what have happened in a factual, non-biased way. And hopefully, through finding out what have happened, we can explore the more nuanced questions of why and the implications and the present. And finally, maybe present a way of preserving and enriching the Coptic cultural heritage in the future. And to do what I just said, I need to ask for your financial contribution as it is the time to take that project to the natural next step, a way to preserve and enrich the Coptic cultural heritage and to be honest, to keep this podcast self-sufficient indefinitely. I have opened a Patreon account for this podcast and I hope to get you on board there with a small monthly contribution as little as $1 a month. Yeah, you heard right. For all the work put into this podcast and 50 completely free episodes over the last year, I'm asking you for just a dollar a month or $12 a year. You can, of course, contribute more and your contribution will have some very practical benefits that I will get to in a bit. But before I do that, I really wanted to share with you where the money is going and what is the long-term vision for this project. The first goal, as I mentioned before, is to have the podcast sustain itself indefinitely, which basically means that part of the money you contribute toward the online hosting fees that is needed to keep it available on the internet. So, as long as there is listeners and contributors, the podcast would continue to be available, even if I am long forgotten about or have moved on with other projects in life. This is really not hard to achieve, and the absolute monetary amount needed is relatively small. The second goal, which is really what I'm excited about, and what pushed me toward asking for your help, is to use the podcast as a part of a bigger nonprofit with the stated mission to forge a global Coptic identity through multimedia, human rights advocacy, and education. What does that mean practically? Well, it means a printing press to help publish works that is by and about the Copts, online and printed periodic publication to give the Copts in the diaspora a voice and an avenue to advocate and speak up for the marginalized communities all over the globe, and many, many more grand ideas that a bunch of like-minded cops came up with and are steadily working toward. This is beyond just an idea at this point, and lots of groundwork have been done already. We have a board, an executive director, a regular meeting, our first semi-finished book, and all kind of other nitty-gritty details. But to officially launch as a legal entity, 
we still need plenty of more work, and honestly, your help. At some point in the near future, the nonprofit will officially launch, and the podcast will be part of it. So, in a strict legal sense, for now, you are contributing to the podcast, but I expect this to change later on. Regular updates will be provided to those who choose to contribute. Now, here is the plan as far as what your contribution will get you. At the lowest level, a dollar a month, I promise at least two special exclusive episodes per year. At the next level, three dollars a month, you will get access to those episodes as well as early access to the normal episodes. At the highest level, $5 a month, you will get access to four special episodes per year and the same early access as the lower tier. If this sounds good to you, head over to patreon.com, search History of the Copts and sign up to whatever tier you would like. The rest of this episode about the beginning of Islam and the Prophet Muhammad is the first exclusive episode for those who sign up. Next week episodes about the birth of the Caliphate and the conquest of Syria slash Battle of Yarmouk would also be an exclusive episode. Then we're going to have a couple of weeks of early access to those who signed up. And finally, the normal podcast feed would resume in early March with an Arab army led by Amr ibn al-As in Gaza to start the conquest of Egypt. If you want to help in other ways, please reach out. A review on iTunes or sharing on social media can really go a long way. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next month. Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion, while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello. And welcome to the history of the cards. Hopefully you had just come over from the normal feed and listened to the first part of this episode about the limitation of the sources and the historiography of this period. With this background it is time to look at the Arabian Peninsula and introduce the seminal events that were happening there while the Persians and Romans were in their struggle. To start, I think it will be important to dispel some misses about the Arabian Peninsula.
contrary to the popular belief, the Arabian Peninsula was not a vast desert devoid of settled communities, farming, and civilization before Islam. This belief is both coming from the Islamic tradition that emphasized that Islam began a new age that ended the period of ignorance, or Al-Gahileya, and also from your everyday typical Orientalist who had a hard time fathoming anything civilized coming outside of Europe. In the southern tip of the peninsula, where modern-day Yemen is, a settled civilization based on farming, trade, and specific religion beliefs sprang up. The Romans called the area Arabia Felix, or Habi Arabia, and tried to conquer it right after the conquest of Egypt, but failed, as I briefly went over in episode 2. The same area was also the focus of a geopolitical struggle in the time of Pope Timothy III and the Emperor Justin, where a rising Jewish kingdom was crushed by the Ethiopian kingdom of Aksum with the support of the Byzantines in episode 36. This last event ended the period of a cohesive state and inaugurated a period of political chaos. Yet still, the area teemed with potential. You see, in addition to maintaining the Red Sea trade between Byzantium and India, the kingdoms at Arabia Felix also maintained semi-control on the nomadic tribes of the interior of the peninsula, mainly via trade and religion. Taking their place in the political sense were the Ghassanids and Lachmids from the northern areas of the peninsula. The legitimacy and the economic benefits from association with Byzantium and Persia allowed those two confederations via various means to maintain semi-control of the tribes of the interior. But the Ghassanids eventually overbowed the Lachmids and in turn were dismantled by Constantinople, as we went over in episode 41. Focus then usurped the throne, and a long destructive war took place between the Persians and the Romans, leaving the interior semi-nomadic tribes of Arabia without a master, and really the only ones who could maintain trade between Yemen, Persia and beyond, and the empire. Trade that was for the most part untaxed and generated a vast amount of wealth to the elite of those tribes. And this was the world where the Prophet Muhammad started his movement. To further explore this world, it is important to know who were those elite and their subjects. Basically, the interior of the Arabian Peninsula were made up of three groups. Settled communities around oases, semi-nomadic groups, and fully nomadic groups. The elite were either fully nomadic warriors who went from one settled community to another, collecting tribute and protecting trade caravans for a fee, 
or a hybrid religious merchant elite who controlled a pagan religious site and used it to generate income and as a protected marketplace to conduct trade. The best known example of this would be Mecca, where the Prophet was born. Violence and killing were highly frowned upon in religious sites. Thus, they naturally served as a safe area to conduct trade in. By the time of Muhammad, those religious merchant elite were outbasing their warrior cousins in the accumulation of wolves and the effective control of the population. Also, both groups needed each other to operate effectively. A balance of sorts was working out, where both groups cooperated and competed with each other in an intricate web of tribal alliances. And this is really the other vital part of the early world of Islam, the tribe. What tribe you were born into, for the most part, determined how your life ended up being. If you were born in the tribe of Quraysh that controlled Mecca, then you probably have an important religious role, or at least you can make a healthy living in trade. On the other hand, if you were born in a semi-nomadic tribe that raises slow-moving sheep and goats, well, you probably are confined to a hard life wandering the desert and paying tribute to the powerful fully nomadic tribes that raised camels and fought on a full-time basis. Law and justice was basically what the powerful tribe in control of the area decided. Christianity and Judaism has penetrated deep in the peninsula, but unlike Islam, an embraceive Christianity, or to a lesser extent Judaism, did not automatically replace your tribe. A Christian from a powerful tribe was a powerful man, and a Christian from a weak tribe was a weak man. Islam, or at least the ideal that Muhammad supposedly preached, was meant to replace the tribe. One would have to give up their tribe to become a Muslim, or at the early stages, a believer. In other words, Islam was a merit-based tribe, replacing a birth-based one. That's the theory on paper anyway. The same old elite would end up dominating the new Islamic state very quickly, and tribal rivalries would be a thing for a long time. Also, to be fair, was room for combatant men to rise. Muhammad was born in this world around 570 AD, in a powerful tribe of Quraysh, who controlled the important pagan religious site of Mecca. His parents died while he was young, and his uncle, a powerful figure within the tribe, raised him. After a good marriage to a wealthy widow and a significant career as a merchant, by the age of 40, Muhammad was a respected, wealthy tribe member residing in Mecca.
Here, almost overnight, he abandoned his trade and became an apostle of God, a prophet who calls all the Arabs to abandon paganism, submit to God's will, and Muhammad himself as his prophet. His fellow tribesmen were naturally annoyed, as much of their influence was derived from Mecca's significance as a pagan site. Initially, they chalked up the change to a middle age crisis, or a case of a rich merchant trying to get into politics with a grand ridiculous message of uniting the Arabs under one god, and sort of left him alone. For the most part, they were right, as his following, for a long time, was a small band of a bunch of nobodies and his personal rich merchant friends, most influential of whom, his eventual successor, the future caliph Abu Bakr. Yet, for 12 years, Muhammad persisted in his message with nothing to show for but increased hostility from the leadership of Quraysh. Hostility that threatened his life when his powerful uncle died and deprived Muhammad from his protection. In 622 AD, he finally got his big break when a group of influential men from an oasis named Yasrib, later famous as Medina, arranged to have Muhammad and his small band of followers emigrate there from Mecca. The idea here was to turn Medina into a religious site like Mecca, with Muhammad's message at the core. Basically, it settled land-owning elite who were vulnerable to the warrior nomads and off and on paid tribute, wanted to become a religious merchant bunch who can't compete with the position of Mecca. This group that invited Muhammad so great potential in his message, not only in making their oasis a religious center as mentioned above, but perhaps more importantly at the early stages in uniting the various inhabitants of Medina under one political leadership. You see, Medina had a large Jewish population that did not see eye to eye with the rest of the pagan tribes inhabiting the area and violence between the pagan Arab and the Jews were a constant problem. Thus, a figure like Muhammad, preaching a message that lay between the two communities, on paper, had potential. Unfortunately for the Jewish community so, Muhammad in time won over a critical mass of the pagan Arabs in Medina, and subsequently the Jews were either massacred, exiled, or a combination of the two. And after that, the vision of a religious center that can compete with Mecca and attract trade came to be. Then, to make a long story short, through a combination of marriages, some very problematic by our modern standards, conquest and economic reasons, tribe after tribe joined the movement in Medina until Mecca itself fell seven years after the immigration, or the Hijra. Now, what separated Muhammad 
from just another Arabian warlord became clear after the fall of Mecca. First, he had a vision of a nation beyond a tribe that we alluded to earlier. The Ummah, or literally the nation, was built on a foundation of a belief in one God and his prophet taking the place of a tribe. And this allowed for even hostile tribes, such as Quraysh, to be easily integrated into the movement. Second, there was serious attempt to instill a divine law that applies to all, powerful and weak. In his immigration to Medina, Muhammad was influential in drawing up what amounts to a modern constitution. A written document with specific rights and responsibilities of the inhabitants of Medina, was memorable concepts such as one nation in respect to the various tribes, unquote, no Jew will be wronged for being a Jew. Lastly, systemic taxation was implemented, not as a tribute from a weak party to a strong one, as it used to be, rather as a sadaqah or charity from the powerful and rich to the needy and weak to earn favor with God and his prophet. For those who are not a part of this nation, the taxation was still maintained as a form of tribute or protection money. In essence, a tribal society were being transformed into a state was a specific religious ideology, divine law that ensured justice, and a taxation mechanism that were not ideologically unacceptable to the independent and generally untaxable nomadic tribes. This ummah in its foundation was meant to absorb as many Arab tribes as possible, and quickly those who did not join it became a threat an ideological threat that opposed God and his prophet, and an economic threat as a potential center for a rival coalition that required less financial contribution than the one in Medina. This drive to include all the Arab tribes under the umbrella led to a brief battle with the Byzantines, who were likely defending their allies, and fresh from their war with the Persians in 629 AD. That battle took place beyond the Dead Sea, around where modern-day Jordan is. In it, the Arab forces sent by Muhammad were completely routed and all of its leaders killed. This defeat led to the Prophet abandoning the tribes that were near Syria and Iraq for now, and concentrate on the unaffiliated tribes elsewhere in the peninsula. By 631 AD, a year after the true cross was returned to Jerusalem, the entire peninsula, but its most southern and northern fringes, were under Medina's control. A year later, Muhammad got a fever and died, aged 62. His achievements were impressive, yet still, the job was far from done. The state that he has established 
was extremely vulnerable. Succession was not clear. Whether there a law could exist without the Prophet expressing it was questionable. And there were many Arabic tribes who only nominally joined the movement and with the death of the Prophet were now ready to assert their independence. And this is not to mention all the tribes who did not join to start with and were ready to form rival coalitions to the one in Medina. Next time, we will discuss the transition post the Prophet's death, the apostasy wars that followed, and finally, end with the conquest of Syria. Thank you for listening and supporting the podcast. Farewell, and until next week.